In our past lessons, we looked at uh, total depravity, and last week we looked at unconditional election, kind of got into that. The basic idea being uh, with total depravity, man is totally depraved, um, totally sinful in that his whole being is fallen, uh, which we would agree with. Scripture supports, certainly. But along with that, in the Calvinist uh, doctrine comes the idea of total inability, that man is unable to believe, unable to repent. Those are good works that we cannot do. Uh, so uh, that, that's kind of a foundation that they lay, that man is unable to believe. And we saw scripture uh, that, that goes to the contrary, actually. Last week we spent time in what is unconditional election. Basically that idea is that God has chosen from eternity past those who would be saved. Those are who the elect are. He has elected uh, based not on any other condition but his own free will. So he doesn't foreknow faith. He doesn't foresee faith. That has nothing to do with it. He just uh, specifically, not randomly, chooses those whom he will save. And there is an idea out there, one that Calvin held to, not all Calvinists hold to, called double predestination, which means God elected some to heaven and he elected the others to hell. And we saw from Calvin's own writings that that is exactly what he believed, uh, that some men are foreordained to life and others are foreordained to destruction. And we... Um, We've been quoting some of the main authors, some of the main speakers on this subject, and, uh, and this we'll, we'll kind of pick up where we left off. When you read their writings, when you, when you uh, listen to their sermons, or you even read Calvin's sermon, you're, you're going to see that they always take the word elect and they always apply it to salvation. Those who are elect are always the saved. It always applies to salvation unequivocally, period, any time in the New Testament. What I find interesting is that when it comes to the Old Testament, it refers to the people. Israel was an elect nation. Israel was the elect or chosen people of God. There's no questions about that. And it really does not apply to the individual in the Old Testament when you look at their writings. But yet when it comes to the New Testament, all of a sudden, anyone who's elect is saved. I mean, that is, that is it. They don't apply it to a people the church is made up of the elect people who are saved. That's what they will say. That's not too, too far off of most of the beliefs out there, actually. Um, most people apply anything and everything to the individual uh, at the expense of the church. And like we've said many times, if you don't see the church in the New Testament, just as Israel was in the Old Testament, if you don't see the church in the New Testament, you're going to run into problems you're going to actually kind of have to lead down a path that, that this doctrine goes because you're not seeing God's chosen people. So just be aware of that. We see elect, we think of the chosen people of God, we think of the church, we think of Israel. They are applying it always to salvation every time and those who are saved. So the elect are the chosen of God to be saved. John MacArthur, quoting him, says, The term elect or chosen is synonymous with Christian, with saved, with born again. He made the choice, not us. So again, just kind of supporting that line of thinking. Anyone who's chosen is chosen to be saved. Any uh, <clears throat> one who is elect is elected to be saved or born again. 
So I, I've done a lot of reading on this. I've done a lot of listening to sermons and, and uh, their writings and all of that, and I have never, ever met a Calvinist who wasn't part of the elect, ever. I've never even heard of a Calvinist who wasn't part of the elect. And they give a message that actually sounds very um, concerning, and it, it goes along the lines of God picked me, but he would never pick you. Or God picks us, he would never pick anybody in the world. You're kind of lucky you're here because God picked you and, and uh, that kind of goes into perseverance of the saints where you better stay or he didn't really pick you. This, this message, I, I, it's not a joyful message. It's not a, a, a happy message. It's a, it's a fearful message, actually. So this area of Calvinism is where God's sovereignty reigns supreme. Remember, we, we said from the start, that everything kind of springs out of God's sovereignty. That's like the, the catchphrase, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He can do what He wants, which we believe. I believe the Scriptures teach wholeheartedly that God is sovereign. As Isaiah 46.10 says, I will do all my good pleasure. God does what He wants. We can't say anything because He's God. But they, they take it to another level, and they elevate it, if you would, maybe more than where it should be, um, I made allusion to this in the first lesson. Um, God has some attributes that everything else springs from. God is holy, right? So everything that God does is holy because He is holy. Everything He says is right. Everything He does is right. Every action of His is right because He is holy. That's one of those kind of mainstay attributes. Or God is. He exists. So everything that comes, comes from Him. He pre-exists everything. Things like that. Well, they take sovereignty and they put it up on a level with those. And I'm not trying to be demeaning when I'm talking about God, but I think that's putting it a little too far. God is holy and God is, so He is sovereign. You see what I'm saying? God is not holy because He's sovereign. They're, they're, they're mixing it up, but that's kind of where they're putting it. God is sovereign, so He's all these things. No, God is what He has manifested Himself to be, so in that, He can be sovereign. And in His sovereignty, He is holy, He is merciful, He is loving, He is just. You see how that, that kind of goes? So, um, they, they, they put it up here and they say God can choose and we can't say anything about it. One of, this is a, a Puritan writer that they are quoting here. And it says, We must not think that God does a thing because it's good and right. But rather the thing is good and right because God does it. I, I agree with that statement. God does things that go against our human mind. And we, are, we have to understand that everything God does is good and right, and it's because He is good and right. But is that to be applied to Him choosing some to go to heaven and some to go to hell? That's what they're saying. Every Reformed author you'll hear, every Reformed writing you'll read, every speaker, author, period, ever says this, God is God, He can do what He wants, we are not. That is like the defense. They start getting questioned on this. That's the defense. Well, God is God. And they'll go to some passages of Scripture. Isaiah 46.10 that I quoted. Um, let, me, let me read that. You can turn there if you want. Let me read that so I don't mess it up.
things, is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. He will do it. It's going to be done, period. There's not going to be anything that stops it. He's going to do it. That's what they take it as. He will do what he wants, and he wants to save some, and some he does not want to. So, uh, Romans chapter 9, we've looked at that multiple times, and especially the the example of Esau and Jacob. Before works were done, before they were born, not by works, but by election, God chose Jacob. And so they, they go to that, and they, they use that um, example. And they say, look, God can do what he wants. It was his pleasure to choose Jacob and not Esau. And that kind of runs through their whole interpretation of Scripture. And our reaction is to say nothing as Job did when God spoke to him. Put your hand over your mouth and not reply because this is God. Here's some verses that they'll use. (coughs) A couple main ones. And you have to understand these things kind of bleed into others. So there's some other verses that might come to mind, but those are going to apply more to to other subjects. But all of this kind of runs together. Uh, The whole tulip kind of runs together as it as it uh, interacts with one another. This is one of them. Ye have not chosen me, as Jesus tells his disciples. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go forth and bring fruit. Go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You you didn't choose me, I chose you. You didn't choose me for salvation, I chose you for salvation. Right? You get get where they'll take that meaning? Which is why there's a a reason I preach from the Bible I do. Because this Bible gives them problems. Two letters, one word. Right? That mean a singular individual or it means plural. He's talking to a group. He's talking to his disciples and you all didn't choose me. I chose you all. He's talking to his church, his people. They got problems when you come to just a simple verse like that. Now, if you're reading it in another, it says, I, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And now you can take it either one way, right? Well, says here ye he's talking to the group we know he's talking to his church they take it as i chose each one of you individually when he's telling his people i have chosen you you are going to be my people you are my elect ones who will bear my name who will carry my commission and they miss it acts 13:48 And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Other translations say as many as were appointed to eternal life. So they say, see, there were some who were appointed to eternal life, there were some who were not. Ignoring the context, I believe we'll come back to this verse to explain it, but (coughs) this was a special time (coughs) when the Gentiles were being brought in. And there was still some doubt among the Jewish believers. And this was a move to sh- to, for God to show, hey, look, the, the gospel's for the whole world. The church is for the whole world. It's not confined to Israel. It's, it's going out through the whole world. And God was doing a special work. There were some who were ordained to believe and to show that power in them. So 
I think we'll come back to that and give some context in a bit. But they'll look at it and say, see, God chose these people. These people were appointed. These people were ordained to eternal life. The rest who did not believe were not. So what is the biblical response? How do we respond to this idea of unconditional election? Remember I told you this one is the one that's hard to explain. It's kind of hard to nail down. Um, it's really, I'm telling you, it's really like a believe it because I say so thing. That, that's the sense I get from the writings. And, and all the other ones, total depravity, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saint, that, those are very well defined. So you can read it and say, okay, I see. This unconditional election, it's not that way. But the Bible's really clear on it. The Bible's really clear on the heart of God. Let me start out by saying there is no doubt that God is sovereign. I am not um, contradicting that or I'm not going against that in any way. God is sovereign, period. He can do what He wants. And we have no room to question because we are His creation. But as I said, in this system, He is defined primarily by His sovereignty. Not grace, not mercy, not any of His other attributes. It's primarily His sovereignty, almost to the exclusion of of all attributes, and in my opinion, the God of Calvinism is a slave to His own sovereignty. He can't do anything else. It's like He's got no room to be God because it's almost like He's locked Himself into this way of dealing with people. And a Calvinist view of God is very impersonal. Like He's a machine. No emotion, just, I'll take you, not you, 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 all the rest, you hundred, you thousand, you're going to hell, I'm saving these people. It's very void of emotion, very impersonal God, and He's only known as the sovereign one who makes us do what He wants. Like a tyrant. If that makes sense. But when you read the Bible you begin to see the heart of God. You begin to see um, some things that they don't talk about. You see pain. That God is pained or grieved by some things, right? Did you have your hand up? Go ahead. It does sound very similar. I'll say that. Of course, they would they would bristle at that and they would get all up in arms. But in the in the end, it's it's kind of the same thing. I think that's exactly what they're doing. It's a lot of thinking. And thinking has led them away from from God. In one thing I'll give I will say this system, um, this reformed view has for it is a very, very high view of God. I mean, they lift him up and and honor Him as God. 
whereas in most evangelical churches today, I think God has been taken down way too far. Like he's a buddy or he's, you know, somebody we can just listen to or not, you know, whatever. They hold God very, very high. But at the same time, I think in the process of their own thoughts and thinking this through and all the scholarly stuff, it's detracted some from it. Well, you can love them if you're chosen. I don't think they can. Uh, seriously, I mean, the way you're describing it, if God is this tyrant, who, who loves a tyrant? I mean, true love, they can say they love them, they can sing, they can uh, follow whatever they believe that he's telling them to do by way of the scripture, but it's all mechanical. Like you said, it's not... If, if God... If God God is who they say he is. He's not loving them. He's just chosen because he's chosen. Well, they will add in that he chose because he loves, but still it, it's it's lacking. I, I'm trying to tap into the way they perceive him, and I just, it's, it's not the God of the Bible. It's not, it's not the God I know. I, I would have to agree. Because the more you read the Bible, the more you see God's heart. You see his, his, not only His love and His mercy and His grace, but that things grieve Him. It, unbelief grieves Him. Whether it's <coughs> of man in general or of His people. All unbelief, I think, grieves or hurts the heart of God. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. Yes. <laughs> and why would you why would you have a child if you don't know that you want to be alone? That's a that's a question that's above my be well, above my yeah, ability to answer. It all depends upon, I will say, the person. Some are very, because uh, some churches are very missional, and yet hold to this kind of view. So they're out there. They'll give altar calls. They'll they're out there, you know, doing outreach and stuff like that, um, operating just as much as any of our churches would. But yet they hold to 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 these kind of beliefs, and they're. Spurgeon was very much that way. Um, he's, he, I, there's a couple of quotes. I can't quote them verbatim, but um, if, you, if you see the elect and you can show me, then show me and I'll preach to him. Until then, I'll preach to every creature under heaven and, and let, something about let, let it be in God's hands. So he, you get that kind of a mindset. And then you got on the other side, um, I think Sister Cheryl said that um, churches that don't give invitation, they don't do outreach because God is going to save the elect. He chose them. He's going to get them in one way or the other. So that depends kind of on the person, um, how, how you view kind of all this. stuff. not just only with your own children, but even in witnessing and being a witness. Um, you, you got two sides of the same coin. Can I just add real quick to my comment earlier about them not uh, 
don't think that I don't think that they don't desire that. I think they do, or at least someone desires to love God. I'm just saying that I don't think that with this kind of a relationship they can love God in his fullness. They can experience the fullness of his love, putting him in that that category that you mentioned earlier where he's just limited to just being sovereign, right? Um, but I, I don't I think probably their hearts are yearning for that, but this I think this prevents them from experiencing his full his full love. I I would agree. I would agree because it takes out many things in the scripture or misapplies them which will lead you away from the personality of God, if you will. So here's one of them, Ezekiel 18 and verse 20 and the following verses. This is God speaking, saying, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Not the soul that is not chosen. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Kind of sounds like he's leaving it uh, the responsibility upon the individual, right? We bear our own choices. Now, of course, this could be applied not only to Israel, but I think it can be applied in a wider spectrum as well. Verse 21, If the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep my, all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live and shall not die. Huh. I thought man couldn't do some things. I thought man couldn't turn. I thought man couldn't change his fate if he was elected one way or the other. But it seems to be that God is not in agreement with that. What does he say? If the wicked turn, he'll be fine. Verse 22, All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him, and in his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? You see the heart there, what God's talking about? I don't want anybody to perish in their own sins. Rather, I would that would that they would turn to me and live. That doesn't sound like somebody who's arbitrarily choosing heaven, hell, door one, door two, right? No, he's kind of making his heart known. Verse 24, But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he has sinned, in them he shall die. That's going to come into play later when they talk about saints persevering. Because it tells me right here that the righteous man can turn and do some wicked things, right? And therefore suffer some separation, some loss, as the New Testament would use. But if he's a... I thought if he was elected to life, then the other one was not possible, right? You couldn't fall from that. Verse 25, And yet you say, The way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal, or not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and dieth in them, for in his iniquity he hath done, he shall die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from the wickedness that he hath committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. 
because he considereth and turneth away from all his transgressions that he hath committed, he shall surely live and surely, and he shall not die. It goes on to use that kind of language. Go down to verse 31. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. That does not sound like God is unconditionally electing some people. Sounds like He's grieved with some sin and He's asking some people to turn. In chapter 33, I'll get to you just two seconds. Let me read this last verse. Ezekiel 33 and verse 11. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Um, just from those two passages, I don't see where they could get election when it comes to salvation from. I see God who is asking, pleading, as He does in other places, as it, it makes His will express in other places, as we'll see, that He wants people to turn from their sins. Brother Brian. Well, in verses like you just read, and, and also, uh, you know, where God says that His desire is that all would come, uh, be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If His desire is that, I mean, they wouldn't be calling Him a liar, right? So, if He says that's what He wants and that's His desire, and He's a sovereign God, then why didn't he do it? We'll get to that. That's coming up. So give me just a couple minutes and we'll answer. I'll give you their answer for it. Matthew 23, 37, that's where Jesus stands and says, Oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not. Well, if God wanted to gather somebody, kind of going to what you say, if he wanted to, wouldn't he do it? Because that's what he does for salvation or not? Or is it a... But he said, you would not, and so... They are separated, right? Isn't he sovereign? How could Jesus say that? Did Jesus forget about the sovereignty of God? Did he have a, a relapse of memory and something happened? How about this? Is it possible for God is it possible that God doesn't get what he wants? Sure it is. That happens all the time. God wants all men to be saved. People reject Him. God wants all men to come to a knowledge of truth. God wants us to be faithful. God wants us to love Him. We don't, do we? Not like we should. Man sins. Man falls. There's a desire that God has, and not all those desires are met. Does that make Him not sovereign? No, it doesn't. He is sovereign. And in His sovereignty, He has allowed us the free will to choose to follow to be faithful, to not, to reject. His sovereignty doesn't violate that. In His sovereignty, He has allowed us to choose. He lays out His plan, as we've spoken many times, and He extends it in mercy. He extends it in grace. He's made all the provisions for it, and we follow or we don't. When we do follow, I think God gets immense glory from that. So much more glory than Him making them do that.
God, God allows us to choose knowing all that will take place. John chapter 3, we don't have to go there. 3.16, for whosoever believeth has eternal life. I, I, don't, I don't know how much more simple you can get of a scripture in the Bible, but yet they'll go around it and we'll get there if we have time when we talk about limited atonement. But I think the Bible's pretty clear. Whosoever would believe will have eternal life. The, man, the world is, It says the world is condemned already because we haven't believed. It's not double jeopardy where God condemns us again. You understand what I'm saying? We're already fallen in sin. Now you have in what's double predestination, God coming again and compounding that by saying you will never believe you are going to hell. We're already condemned. The Son came to save us. And the, the difference is some people come to the light they see their deeds are evil and they run away. They reject. Or the others who see their sin bow humbly before God, believe, and receive eternal life. That's what that whole passage is about. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You need to be born again and he explains it. Here's where you're alluding to. 1 Timothy chapter 2. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Again, I don't know how much clearer you could get in the Scripture. God wants all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. To me, that's a case closed. Unconditional election, I'm going to quote this verse. God wants all men to be saved. Revelation 22, whosoever will come and drink of the water of life freely. We read some of these a couple weeks ago. Ah, but there's an answer. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. <clears throat> they say God has two wills. I forgot what they're called. <laughs> a decretive a decretive will what he decrees? I think it's effectual will and effectual what he affects. Efficacious. Efficacious will. I think that's it. So there's a will that he decrees. This is what I want to happen. And then there's the efficacious will. This is what I'm going to do. So here's how they'll, here's literally how they will answer 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, specifically verse 4. He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2 25. He's talking about how a minister should be in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement, to the acknowledging of the truth. If God will give them repentance, see, he wants all men to be saved, and God gives that to them to the acknowledging of the truth. God wants all men to be saved, but God gives that. But they don't understand the context of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. He's talking about false teachers. He's talking about people that turn away from the truth, that knew the truth. They turn away. They walk away. And he says, instruct them meekly. 
Be careful for yourself. Instruct them meekly that God might open their eyes again and draw them back. You might give them repentance from what they've fallen away so they can see the truth again because they've walked away and they've turned their back on it. But they take that out of context and they, they, they apply it with this verse. So they say there's some things that God wants to do and what He does. Make sense? Probably not. That's how they'll walk around some of these verses when they're pretty clear. Listen, I, I, I don't. This is this is one of the the things about. Well, yeah. It's a presupposition that you bring to Scripture, which they say they hate, they, they teach against it all the time. They, here, here's what they say. They will say, especially if, if, if they sit down with somebody like us, and say, hey, we see the church in the New Testament. This is written to churches. This is about God's new covenant people who He has saved and who He has called. That's His elect. They'll say, well, you're bringing that presupposition to Scripture. So everything you're reading into that all around when that's that's not the case it's written to churches to the church at corinth to the church at rome these local assemblies that's how the bible's written the fact is you have to bring a calvinist supposition a presupposition to every verse you read i read second timothy 2 3 4 i say god wants all men to be saved not all are because we reject so how about we get out and tell them and help that not to be as much they say well that can't that can't be so so how can God gets everything He wants all the time. And He said He will do all His good pleasure. So He doesn't save everybody. So there must be a, this kind of will and a, that kind of will. But see, I'm so smart. I said this and I've got five letters after my name, so you must trust me. Kind of sounds like Calvin when he's bashing the Anabaptists. <laughs> those dogs, those brute beasts, they don't know how to speak. They won't give up, but they don't really know how to speak very well. It's the same kind of attitude that runs through today. So that's how they'll walk around some of this. They have a faulty definition of the elect and a presumption of God's purpose. Turn to Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints, the holy ones, which are, Ephesus, which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Jesus Christ. That's to his holy ones in Ephesus, his body there, his church. I'm not bringing a supposition there. That's what Paul's saying. Writing to the saints at Ephesus. Grace to you, peace from God our Father. And if you don't doubt me, we'll read it at the end of the chapter. Grace, grace be to you, peace from God our Father, from our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us. Let, let's read this with a Calvin presupposition. He has blessed us. <laughs> Zap. Man, He has blessed us. You, you didn't have any say. He did it. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as He hath chosen us in Him. 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be and will be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. They presume to define what that means. The best interpretation for Scripture is Scripture, right? Not John MacArthur's commentary. Not John Piper's commentary. Not John Calvin. Not anybody named John. Except the John that wrote the Bible. <laughs> okay? Father, you want to know what God's will is that Paul's talking about? You can flip over a couple chapters and, oh, let's, let's see. Hold on. Is that what I wanted? Hold on two seconds. There, okay. Verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. That's where I'm looking for. They presume to know what the good pleasure of His will. Verse 9 says, He has made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure. Okay, now let's define that. That's the verse I needed. Chapter 3, verse 3. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This mystery of his will, that it is, is his good pleasure, what does Paul say that is? How are the Gentiles made of the same body with Israel? The church. The good pleasure of His will is that He's bringing it all together in the church. Israel is coming now into the relationship they were always supposed to have and the Gentiles are now coming and being made fellow heirs, partakers together of those things like he says in chapter 3. Or chapter 2, fellow citizens with the saints made of the household of God. That happens through the church. So if you go back and you understand and you apply that to chapter 1, it gives it a different meaning. He's abounded toward us, verse 8, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of, will, of His will, according to His good pleasure which He has purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ. He defines that in chapter 3, right? Jews, Gentiles, all in this church. He's not talking about all the saved. He's talking about a body uh, together to serve. In whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Go to verse 19. What it is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, set Him at His own right hands in the heavenly places, 
far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The fullness of Christ is his body, the church. The good purpose, good pleasure of, of God was not only to send His Son to redeem humanity, but to gather all things together in Him, in His body, in the church. And His working is towards that. They go to define the purpose of God as salvation, and that's it. Nothing else after that. They presume to know the purpose of God when the purpose of God is bigger than just that. It includes that, yes, but it is greater And so His elect now is not just an individual, it is a people. Just as Israel was in the Old Testament, it is in the New Testament. It is His church in the New Testament. It seems pretty clear to me. Does that that make sense to everybody? And by the way, they themselves don't seem so sure at times. John Piper, the doctrine of election probably more than any other doctrine, raises more questions than the Bible gives answers for. I'd be fine if he was talking about Revelation. He's not talking about Revelation, the book of Revelation. He's talking about salvation. Listen, I got no questions when I read the Bible. (laughs) It seems pretty clear to me unless I try to overthink it. And this is like one of the head honchos. Well, there's there's a lot of questions that go unanswered. Well, maybe you should rethink your questions. Maybe you should rethink why you're asking them. Even the man himself. Listen to this quote. This is Calvin, written in Institutes of the Christian Religion, which all of this comes from. Calvin says this, I admit that it was by their own fault Ishmael, Esau, and others fell from their adoption. For the condition annexed annexed was that they should faithfully keep the covenant of God, whereas they violated it. To me... With that statement, he sunk his ship. Because they base everything on Romans 9 for unconditional election. Calvin took a cannon, pointed it through the floor of the boat, and blew it to bits. I admit, it was by their own fault. The ones who weren't chosen fell away. Listen, man, he just went on saying that they weren't chosen. How could they fall away if they weren't chosen by their own fault? Exactly. That didn't make any sense to me. But, hey, that's why we're here to try to shine the light of truth, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you say that their doctrine just removes all personal responsibility? It does. I think it does. Which is contradictory. You just, I, I, I read that and it kind of, that's one of those things you just stop. What? Did you just say that Really? It's all God's choice. It has nothing to do with us. Yet you say, oh yeah, they fell away because I would say that. Not a Calvinist. But hey, not Calvin himself. That's what he did. Exactly. Which they're not supposed to have. I would sum up what we believe that God has sovereignly, not sovereignty, typo. Sorry, this was all done on an iPhone. God has sovereignly chosen to provide redemption for mankind, to call a kingdom people to Himself, whom He will be represented by, whom He will work through, and whom He will glorify. This is to be followed by faith. That's His elect. Those who follow by faith. They follow the call 
for salvation, for covenant relationship. They are His chosen people. We can follow that or we cannot. Seems pretty simple to me. So, any questions? Yes, because, well, yes, I think they would. I think they would say you're part of the elect, but in error, doctrinal error, um, holding to, uh, their big thing is you're either Calvinist or Arminian. So you're, you're part of the elect, but holding to some Arminian errors. Not really. They they believe when it comes to eschatology and all of that, their view is much like I, I'm I'm talking about the main line because I want to address at the end of this um, Baptist ranks in Calvinism because let's let's be honest there's, there's a lot of Baptists that were Calvinist still are Calvinist um, not to the not to the extreme of some of these things I'm talking about but. So I want to address that later. But a lot of what these mainline guys believe is really along the lines of just everybody else out there. Everybody's fine at the end, and everybody gets everything. They're just all the elect. They're just like number four. Yes, in, in many ways, yes. Yes, 100% when it comes to the church and end-time things too. The elect is everybody saved everywhere, and everybody saved everywhere is the church. You're exactly right. I, I was just going to say this. This is the actual foundation of the Protestant Reformation, the universal visible church. So that's what we're we're looking at. I can tell you exactly what they think of us. Um, and just how far they think we're gone, I think is indicated when they start calling me Mister instead of Brother. <laughs> so that's just. But. Um, their position is all the elect are saved. All the saved are the elect. We took the position that the church was elect. Their conclusion was, therefore, you are saying you have to be in the church to be saved. Hmm. Because that is the elect. All the saved are the elect. So you had to be in the church to be saved. And of course we're going, no. But that's what was was hung. That's the, the way the mind thinks is from the position of all the saved are the elect. And they view the whole scripture from that perspective. And there's 50 verses, 50 passages they know like the back of their hand. And there's others, the ones you were quoting that counter that. But it all really then comes down to not verses taken out of context or one verse at a time, but to a principle of sovereignty I think one thing they missed, the idea of sovereignty means you are, you answer to nobody, but there is no higher authority. There is no one you account to. You are sovereign. You do as you wish because you are the top. What they neglect is that 
doesn't mean you're not accountable to yourself. God is accountable to his own character, his own holiness, mm. and that's what governs his behavior. And um, just to make it sure, I like that. But, uh, they, they believe God overcame our guilt by providing a substitute. They believe he overcame our death by, by the resurrection. But he cannot overcome the fact that people are spiritually dead and can't understand the gospel. And so they, they make, God makes them alive first. And that enables them to repent and call upon the Lord, which I think is redundant and probably um, disgraceful if you have been saved and your sin gone. Nothing to repent of in my opinion. But um, I've literally asked one many, do you believe God can save everybody if he chooses to? And the answer is yes. He can save anyone he wants, so therefore he can save everybody. And to Bob's question earlier, I would ask why he doesn't. If he can, why doesn't he? Or he could save no one and be justified in it by providing no salvation. And they said, yes, he can save no one and be right in doing it. I said, can he enlighten the heart of unbelievers to see the truth and they repent upon that enlightenment and call upon him for salvation and him quicken those that call upon him? And the answer is no. They're dead. And um, I just, my answer is, my God can talk to dead people. Yeah, amen to that. You can't, you can't, and so when we teach, preach, witness, whatever, we got to understand we can't, we can't communicate with that person. They are dead spiritually, but the Holy Spirit can talk. That's not a problem for Him, because He's the God of the living and the dead, and He can talk to a dead person. So that's what they say: they're dead. They can't hear, think, smell, react. They can't do anything. Therefore, God must quicken them, so they enabling them to do that. But yet, God can talk to dead people. <laughs> yes, He can. It's a, uh, it's a very tangled up kind of way of thinking, honestly. When you, when you kind of get down to it. And let me let me say this. At any point, we will never come together because the universal, all the saved are the elect, and then there's the bride which He chose. Let me say this before you, brother Mark. The, there is one who is called the elect, the chosen one. That is Christ. Christ is the elect in whom sins are forgiven. He is the elect in whom the fullness of is in His body. So to be in Him is not only in salvation, but part of His body. That's what it means to be in Christ. They'll say, oh, you are placed in Christ and all this at salvation. But the fullness of Him is His body, the church. So that's where we get our terminology from the church being the elect because it's His body. We're in Him, part of Him. And that's more than just salvation. So I, I don't, I see it clearly in Scripture, but I, I don't understand why others can't. It's almost to the point you have to ignore it, honestly, uh, to not see it, I think. Brother Mark. <laughs> Going back, that's why they believe he's the 
Yeah. It's like I said. Go ahead. Go ahead. They call themselves just people under the Baptist name that believe these things. How do you? How can we uh, have fellowship with them? True fellowship. How can we be considered them brothers and consider them spiritual churches? And and they just kind of lean a little this way. It's it's a totally different experience. The truth. Well, you got to understand, you got degrees of it, honestly. And I'm talking, this is somebody who's going to be a full-on five-point hyper-Calvinist, hard-shell, whatever other name we've given to him. This is somebody who's uh, the John MacArthur's, John Piper's, people out there like that, this Reformed theology. There's been diff- there's different shades of it, I think. Some people that, like I said, they, they'll, they, they might believe... God has already chosen those who are going to be saved, but I'm still going to preach because it's through the gospel that these people are saved, you know, and they could have a different view of the elect as being also part of the church because I've read some of literature that, that kind of blends that in too with it. But as far as this mainstream, what we're talking about right here, I, I don't know. That's something I'm still kind of juggling with in my mind. How, how do you believe this? And I don't know. I don't really know, honestly, how how that happens. That's something I want something I want to look into because I I know there's churches within our own history within the past 40, 50 years that we worship side by side with people that held to this. So that's that's something I need to look into to answer first. One fundamental flaw that leads to most, if not all, of false doctrine is a failure to see the church, God's people in Scripture. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it is. Yet, everybody, and I, 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 can th- I think I can say it unequivocally, everybody will see Israel in the Old Testament. They will teach the Old Testament almost exactly as we do, but when it comes to the New Testament, it's a, flip, a switch is flipped, and all of a sudden it's all about the individual. But it's about his people, the church, too. No. No. Because Paul says in Romans chapter 9, not all Israel is Israel. It is those who were faithful. There was the faithful within his chosen people. Which sounds a lot like what we would say. I'm telling you. Let me, let me just uh, introduce next week's topic. Because I want you to think about a phrase if you can. Limited atonement. You'll hear it. Um. Defined as definite atonement, actual atonement, particular redemption. Here's the phrase. I want you to think of what you feel about this. The Christ, the death of Christ was sufficient for all, but effective for some. It was efficient for all, but effective for some. That is the tagline. That is the phrase. So think about that, what you feel about that, and then we'll come together next week. We'll dive into limited atonement.